Welcome to Civilly Speaking with host Sean Harris. Each month, Civilly Speaking brings you interviews on practical and timely legal issues on the local and national level. We hope you enjoy today's show. Hello, I'm your host, Sean Harris. This is episode 39 of Civilly Speaking, brought to you by the Ohio Association for Justice. Today is June 27th, 2018. I'm here live in studio with our guest, Eric Cameron, from right here in Columbus, Ohio. Eric, thanks very much for joining us here on Civilly Speaking. Sean, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Our topic today is workers' comp in Ohio, but also perhaps the philosophy of the practice of law. Eric, talk to us about what you've seen as far as an evolving workers' comp practice in the 21st century. Thank you, Sean. You know, it's interesting. I, I listened to one of the other podcasts you guys did with Jeff Johnson, and, and he had some, some really interesting observations about how it's changed. And he and I have been practicing about the same amount of time. And I would echo much of what he said. And, and really, I, I found myself kind of taking notes as I was listening. These are things I should be doing in my practice more, more frequently. One of the things that I've always been struck by, and, and workers' comp is all I have ever done, but one of the things I've always been struck by is that this bar is so collegial. It's, it's people get along for the most part. I get along with the people with whom I argue against on a regular basis, and of course there are exceptions to the rule, but I think that's the norm. I really do. We interact with each other on such a regular basis. My office, for instance, has anywhere from 100 to 150 hearings a week, so 100 to 150 opportunities to argue with these people every single week. At some point, I, I think that breeds, you know, there's the old, old concern about it breeding too much familiarity, but... I think really out of necessity, it breeds respect for one another because that just functions more, that, that it's more effective. Things have changed in my estimation in the last several years, and, and part of it is that we have this shrinking pool of workers' compensation claims being filed and being allowed about 10% a year. And as a quick aside, why is that? I've well, heard that there said. are lots of theories on it, but you know, I, I, I think we would be Foolish to say, it, it, it's all due to increased spending on safety programs across the state of That's Ohio. That's not it. That's not it. I see. That's not it. I, not to dismiss that entirely, because I'm sure that's prevented some workplace accidents. But I think people feel increasingly pressured to not pursue claims. I think they feel that through tacit actions of their employer. I think they feel it by their peers sometimes in the workplace. I think people really, really value their jobs, and they it's become increasingly obvious to people that employers in the state of Ohio can kind of have their way. You become a liability to them if you become hurt at work. Now, I'm speaking in, in pretty broad brushstrokes here, and that's not true everywhere, but it's much more true than it is not true with most of the claimants I deal with. And so I think people see that. I think there are many more self-insured employers in the state of Ohio. And as a result of that, we don't find out about as many claims. People, those claims are, claims are kept internal, and, and nobody finds out about them. And so you have fewer claims. You have a competitive plaintiff's bar that has always been fairly competitive while, while being collegial. There are a finite number of these folks that I can represent. And so what ends up happening is 
at least what I have seen is is less collegiality, and and it's unfortunate. I, I've seen that it used to be when I first started practicing. If somebody, one of my clients, were to to walk into somebody else's office, I'd get a phone call before they'd even sit down with them. I find out about it after the fact now, most of the time. And there are still the people, the guys that have been doing this for years, and and and, and by and large, uh, OHA members who I can trust, who will still call me and who will still say, "Hey." This guy's doing a fine job on your case. Go back and see him. But there's been a shift in that regard. There's no question about it. So, Eric, you and I were chatting before we started the show, and you'd mentioned, as we sit here today, it's actually Take Your Child to Work Day. It is. You had an experience uh, in hearings this morning. It was phenomenal. I I had a, a hearing this morning, and it was one of these potentially fairly contentious hearings. And I had a couple of witnesses. The employer had a couple of witnesses, and the hearing officer had brought their children to work today. And it was, there was probably a 12-year-old little girl and a 9 or 10-year-old little boy. And I found myself in the middle of this hearing where, you know, we've all had the experience where something's being said or, or at least insinuated that you know isn't true, you know isn't accurate, you want to interject, you know that you can't. Your body language, as you know, carries with it a a whole slew of messages. But I found myself being hyper-conscious of the fact that there were young people in this room who were there to watch attorneys and to see how attorneys, not just what they do, but how they behave. And I had this kind of, just this little awakening in the course of this hearing that, that, that you've heard that old thing about the who you are speaks so loud, I cannot hear a word you say. And irrespective of what I was saying, it became very obvious to me that these kids were watching us and how we were behaving and how we were interacting with each other, my, myself and the employer's attorney and, and the hearing officer. And the hearing went on, and it was, it lasted, it was actually fairly long for us, it was 45 minutes or so. And, and it occurred to me afterward how much, how much better off we would all be if I behaved as if my kids were in the room or somebody else's kids were in the room watching an attorney do what they do and, and watching how they do that, it just seems to me that there's a lot to be had from, from thinking about things that way. We become, I think in a volume-oriented practice, there's this tendency to become jaded, become cynical in what we do. We do the same thing over and over and over again. There's slight variations in it, but obviously it's so important to keep in mind, even if I do this 50 times a day, this is the most important thing in this person's life right now. What we're talking about, what we're doing, has to do with whether or not they're going to be in pain tonight or tomorrow, has to do with whether or not they're going to be able to pay their water bill this month, has to do with whether or not they're going to be able to have Christmas for their kids. And it's really easy when you're taking on hundreds of new clients a year to become a little bit cynical and a little bit jaded by all of it. What if, though, you know, what, what if I can somehow, we can all somehow introduce just a modicum more of humanity into this process? And, and it's easy to remember this when you have the client who hugs you or when you see the client in tears. Or, or you, what something happens, you particularly identify with a client. It's a lot harder when that person's angry, when that person's upset, they're indignant about how they're being treated, 
and they're taking it out on you because you're the human being in front of them. And it's a lot easier in those circumstances when I go into a hearing, be much less tolerant of the person who's, you know, letting red herring fly down the stream and and, and telling half-truths, and I want to stop it, you know, and my eyes want to roll, and I want to, it's a lot easier to, to, to not think about how would I behave if I had a couple of kids in the room with me here. And I don't know, I, I, I think our practices, workers' comp in, in specifically lends itself to kind of a churn and burn type of deal where you are just going and going and going and going, and the inbox is never empty, man. And all of our practices are, are like that to some extent, but I just know, I, I, I know when I get back to my office, they're going to be, these files multiply like rabbits. And hey, that's great news, right, for my practice. But, but the work's never done. The people are never done. And it's really easy to just forget that this is the most important thing in this person's life. It, it obviously, it was a unique and unplanned, unforeseeable situation that brought you to this thinking today. You didn't walk into work thinking, hey, I can't wait to see what it's like with hearing officer kids at, at the hearing. But I wonder how, how we, as you say, guard against becoming too focused on perhaps the business side of the practice as compared to the professional side. Yeah, and I think that's tough because one of the things I always tell you know, people who don't know what I do for a living and, and we're talking about is that they, they never teach you how to run a law practice in, in law school, right? And I spend more time, I spend much more time now on that side of things than I do practicing law, I feel like. At the same time, practicing law is what I want to do. Making, I, I, I love getting 5, 10, 15 minutes to champion somebody and win, lose, or draw, having to pick up the pieces and do it again, maybe even the next hour, the next day, the next week. I really like that about what I do. I really like it that I make a difference in those people's lives. So, so why would I not? This is just my, my observation. Very few people, as you know, are, are sitting around at the end of life going, man, I wish I, wish I would have worked more. I wish I would have more money. When we're talking about our careers and when we're at, at convention or we're at a CLE or at a board meeting, the stories we're telling and the camaraderie, that which binds us, is the causes that we champion for these people. It is not our, our business acumen. It is not how much money we've made. It is not, you know, we all get excited over, over you know, big verdicts for people, and it's, it's awesome. It's great because you know how many hours, days, years that guy has toiled away at nothing. So you really do celebrate those, those big wins. But at the same time, the stories you remember, the tales you're telling people, are stories about the differences you made in people's life, the impact you made in people's lives. So why would I not focus on that more? Why would that not be, rather than how much money I made this year or how many clients we got or, or how much my practice has grown, why wouldn't my focus be on kind of the humanity of, of, of what we do? And I don't know, I think that starts at home, really. It starts at home. What I mean by that is, in our offices, one of the my mentors, a, a man who, who kind of taught me how to do what I do, Jim Clymer, every morning I would watch him go around and talk to each of our staff. And not just, hi, how are you? Asking them about their lives, asking them about what's going on with them. 
he treated them he, he treated them not just like human beings, but he treated them like family members, right? And as our office has grown and as offices grow, it becomes increasingly difficult to do that. But if I treat people with respect there, when I go out from there, when I go to hearings, when I'm interacting with other attorneys, I think I'm much more inclined to probably treat those people with respect too and to remember kind of the, the very human element of why we do what we do for a living. I'm reminded as you're talking about the human aspect of what we do, whether it's injured workers or in the PI context. My senior partner, Mark Kittrick, telling me, and I, and it was not something I ever picked up on until he pointed this out, and, and you notice, I would say, in the plaintiff's bar generally and OHA members in particular, even though we're competitors, we're still friends. We're still fighting the same fight. You can't say that about the defense bar. They would steal a client from each other in yeah. a heartbeat, I yeah. suspect with employer's counsel as well. And, and, and that's remarkable since we all are undeniably in business yeah. and we're all competitors. Yet on the plaintiff side, on the injured worker side, it's a united front. Yeah. And that, once he said that, I went, oh, my God, that's right. And how remarkable. It's really great. And it makes you, like anything else, like any community, maybe it's it, it, speaking too plainly, but I think it's much of what our country has lost is, is this ability to have a sense of community. That sense of community, both geographically in terms of where you live, but professionally in terms of what you do, how critical that is to feel a part of something larger, to feel a part of a tribe, if you will, right? Feel part of something bigger than you, and, and that there are brothers and sisters who are walking alongside you, that I am not alone in what I do. Man, that's, some, that's emboldening when you go out into the world and you know that, that, that that's the case, that you're not alone. You can walk a little, with a little bit more wind behind you, you know, and, and feel a little bit stronger about, about what you're doing on any given day. So, Eric, part of being part of something larger and being a group, of course, involves some level of communication. And what have you noticed recently when it comes to the ability for lawyers and others to communicate their ideas? I'll tell you, Sean. This is this is my observation, and I, I don't know how, how much how much it's universal or, or how widespread it is, but we interview in any given year probably twenty or thirty law school students to clerk with us. And and then usually the last the last few years we'll we'll interview for an attorney position as well. And it's it's a part of the blessing of, of, of growing. One of the things that I struggle with is at the risk of, of sounding too much like the guy who wants to get the kids off his lawn and, and doesn't is a neophyte and doesn't understand technology, I, I do have my iPad right in front of me right now. I'm pretty proud of that. But I will tell you, I have seen there's this, this strange dichotomy that exists between our enhanced ability to be connected and communicate with one another. And this isn't a, a novel observation. I think it's, it's, it's uniquely applicable to what we do for a living. But this increased means of communication through so many devices and such a sense of immediacy to it and the decreased ability to actually communicate. And what I mean by that is that when we do what we do for a living, by and large, my ability to communicate is measured in two ways, both by what I say and how I say what I say and what I write and how I write what I write. And I have seen, I think, an unfortunate decline in that in the last several years where the, the writing is not what it should be in my estimation 
for a lawyer, for somebody who's gone to school for seven years to learn how to communicate. The ability to interpersonally connect with somebody is not what it should be. I can put somebody in a room and they can flash for five or ten minutes, but man, beyond that, they don't know what to talk about or how to express themselves. And I see, you know, I, I, I don't bemoan this and say, well, the profession is lost and it's terrible. I look at it and, and, and see that in my estimation, what our job is as mentors is a little bit different from what it used to be. It used to be a maybe a little bit more inside baseball stuff. This is how you got to process this application and this type of award and a workers' comp claim. And this is how you talk with this type of client. Much of what we do now, and I think the most important work I can do in working with a young attorney is teaching them through sharing my experience how to connect with their clients, how to connect with other lawyers, how to communicate with with hearing officers, with judges, with juries. That's a huge part of it right now. And I think by and large, it's not just law schools, but it's society as a whole as, as has kind of brought these kids to the table ill-prepared to be professional advocates. And, and many it's not that they're not smart. They're brilliant. It's not that they don't have technology at their disposal and the means to be able to do things, to potentially run circles around me. They do. But at the end of the day, guess what? Guess who's making the decisions? It's jurors. It's judges. It's hearing officers. It's, on some level, opposing counsel. And if I don't know how to interpersonally connect with each of those individuals live and in person, I'm in some trouble and my client's in some trouble. So it's a shift as I see it in terms of how we talk to and how we teach and, and how we mentor young, young lawyers. Well, I know you got to get going because Denny's specials are, uh, <laughs> are going to run out soon. Get off my lawn. <laughs> Eric Cameron, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us here on Civil Speaking. It's been an honor, Sean. Thanks for having me. Eric, thanks for being here, and thanks to all the listeners out there. If you like our show, check out civillyspeaking.com. Check us out on iTunes as well, and please leave us a review. We really appreciate it. And we'll see you on the next episode of Civilly Speaking.